Father, thank you so much for this opportunity to be together. You are so gracious and so kind, and I thank you for the time that we have right now to be in your word. And I pray that uh, you would prepare our hearts, and uh, we would be ready to receive your word, that uh, we would see you rightly, we would see ourselves rightly, and we would thus respond to what you say. Lord, I thank you for your word, and we commit this time to you now, in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, today we're going to see that God, although he spoke long ago in many ways and many portions, has now spoken through his son. We're going to see that God has given his final revelation through his son, Jesus Christ. And as we approach Christmas quickly, and it's amazing how fast the years go by and even how fast the weeks go by. As you get older, you realize, wow, I'm getting old. <laughs> I don't know if you're saying that, but I am. <laughs> so, and uh, we see how fast they go by. And it's this season again in which we celebrate the birth of Jesus Christ. And within that, I consider it right to remind myself and to remind us concerning what child is this. So would you turn your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 1, and we're going to be looking through verses 1 through 3. And as we look at what child is this, because not only do we need to be reminded concerning uh, who Christ is, but also we need to be reminded concerning how God speaks to us today. So with that in mind, Hebrews chapter 1, we're going to be looking at verses 1 through 3, and we're going to take a short break from our Second Peter passage. But as you'll see today, there are some things which correlate together within this passage uh, concerning uh, what we'll see about Jesus, concerning about revelation, concerning what we've seen in Second Peter. So with this in mind, uh, the book of Hebrews, uh, let me share some context to it. Well, we know that we don't know who wrote it, but we know that God, uh, inspired by this, or that a man inspired by the Spirit, wrote the book of Hebrews. But we don't know specifically who it is. Uh, we know that all Scripture is inspired by God and is profitable, obviously, for teaching, for uh, reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be adequate for every good work. And we know it was written sometime after the ascension of Jesus Christ and before the destruction of the temple in 70 A.D. Because it is apparent that sacrifices were still being performed in the temple at this time this letter was written. Now, who was it written to? Well, we see it was specifically written to Jews who were being persecuted for their faith in Jesus Christ. And yet within that group of those who were being persecuted for their faith in Jesus Christ, there were those who had a said faith but had not truly come to faith yet, and they were being tempted to fall away from the only thing that could save them, the only one who could save them, Jesus Christ. And so within that, you see warnings throughout the book uh, not to uh, turn away from the only Savior, Jesus Christ. So with that in mind, we see that this book is a word of exhortation. Um, Chapter 13, verse 22, and that is somewhat harmonious to the idea of a Jewish sermon that would be given in the synagogue. You can see that in Acts chapter 13, verse 15. Now within this word of exhortation, it has a Christ-centered focus with those warnings woven throughout to those who would have a said faith but really do not have a faith in Jesus Christ. And God is so gracious to warn anyone who names the name of Christ but truly isn't saved because God desires all men to be saved. So with this, in this book, it's, 
it's seen very clearly as you go through the book that it's not written to prove that Christianity is superior to Judaism, but that Christ and his new covenant is superior to the old covenant, which is a type and shadow of what was to come. And within this, the author lays and systematically argues the case for the superiority of Christ. First of all, he proves that Christ is superior to angels, the messengers of the Old Covenant. And that's the section we're going to be uh, just coming into as we begin this passage. And then he proves that Jesus is superior to Moses, the apostle of the Old Covenant. And then he proves that Jesus Christ, being a superior high priest, mediates a superior covenant based on his one-time, once-for-all sacrifice, which brought about forgiveness of sins and access to God. And so the main theme in this book, as we're going to see today, is actually revealed in the first three verses where we, are, uh, where we see how God speaks. And within that, there's an exhortation at the end of this doctrinal portion, chapter 12, verse 25, see to it that you do not refuse him who is speaking. If God, as we will see, and, and he does, speaks through his son now, see to it that you do not refuse him who is speaking. Therefore, we should listen to him. So with that in mind, I felt it necessary to point to the person of Christ as we look at, as we come close to this in this Christmas season. So again, turn in your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 1, and we're going to see uh, God's final word in what child is this. Verse 1, God, after he spoke long ago to the fathers in the prophets in many portions and in many ways, in these last days has spoken to us in his son, whom he appointed heir of all things, through whom he made the world. And he is the radiance of his glory, the exact representation of his nature, and upholds all things by the word of his power. When he had made purification of sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become much better than angels, uh, he, as he has inherited a more excellent name than they. So our passage today, we're basically going to see two areas, how God spoke previously and how God speaks today. Notice, first of all, we see how he spoke previously. Verse 1, God, after he spoke long ago to the fathers in the prophets in many portions and in many ways, that's the first part, in these last days has spoken to us in his Son. Now, as we begin this wonderful passage in the book of Hebrews, notice right away this book is about God. God is the subject here. He is the subject of the first verse. And so often we come to Scripture looking for what it does for us or, or what about us. And yes, God does address us, but the Word of God is primarily about the God of the Word. And from that, he then explains in light of who he is and what he has done, how we are to relate to him and so here, right away, God, after he spoke, now this term, after he spoke, is it's really a participle. It speaks of God after having spoke, and it's in a, it's in a tense in the Greek uh, language that speaks of a completed action. God, after having spoke, and then we have the main verb, look at verse 2, in these days, has spoken. So after having spoke, he has spoken. That's the context of this. So the first part, after having spoken, then secondly, in these last days, has spoken to us. And so back in our passage, it says in verse 1, God, after he spoke long ago. 
Now, the term long ago speaks of what was formerly or in the olden times or, or in the past. It was a long time from that point in, in this period in the first century. It was a long time back that he is speaking of here. He says, God, after he spoke long ago, and notice what he says, middle of verse 1, to the fathers. Now, remember, this is written to the Hebrews. This is written, written to, to, to Hebrew believers and those who would identify with the body of Christ but yet had not come to faith yet. They had tasted the heavenly gift. They had, they had, they had partaken of the word, but they hadn't responded and come to faith. And so he says here, God spoke to their Jewish ancestors. That's what he's saying. God spoke to, long ago to the fathers. And notice what he says. Or their forefathers. He says, in the prophets or literally by means of the prophets god spoke to israel in the past completed action by means of the prophets and so who were the prophets well we see that they were simply god's mouthpieces they were those who declared his word thus saith the lord uh, we're going to get to this in our study in first and second peter but if you turn to second peter chapter one we're we're going to move up to this pretty quickly well, I don't know about that with Christmas, but we'll see, right? Second Peter chapter 1, verse 20. And Peter, in light of uh, the revelation that he saw as an apostle, says, we have the prophetic word made more sure. you got the word of God in written form, and notice what he says. Second Peter 1, verse 20. But know this first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture, whenever you see that word Scripture, it means graphe, it means writing, it's the written word, is a matter of one's own interpretation, for no prophecy was ever made by an act of human will. But men moved by the Holy Spirit spoke from God. Men moved by the Spirit spoke from God. They declared God's words. And throughout the Old Testament, we see God's prophets declaring his truth, turning these, his people from their sin to the Lord, to repent. Turn to Jeremiah chapter 23. Here we see the Lord God condemning the false prophets who said they declared and spoke for God, but they didn't because they didn't announce his words. Jeremiah 23, verse 21. Jeremiah 23, verse 21, he says... I did not send these prophets, but they ran. I did not speak to them. So so true prophets are sent by God, and God speaks to them, and then they declare his words, right? He says, but they prophesied. But if they had stood in my counsel, they would have announced my words to my people. That's what prophets did, announcing his words, and would have turned them back from their evil way and from the evil of their deeds. These prophets spoke God's word, and they also spoke of Christ and his coming. In 1 Peter chapter 1, you can turn there, 1 Peter chapter 1, we see this declaration concerning this great salvation that was first declared to the prophets. The prophets spoke forth God's word, and more specifically, they spoke concerning Christ. 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 10 this tremendous salvation that true believers have. He says, And to this salvation, the prophets who prophesied of what? The grace that would come, uh, 
the grace that would come to you made careful search and inquiry, seeking to know what person or time the Spirit of Christ within them was indicating as he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the glories to follow. And it was revealed to them, that's the prophets, that they were not serving themselves but you in these things which now have been announced to you through those who preach the gospel to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things to which angels long to look. And one other passage you want to look at, look at Acts chapter 10. So prophets spoke forth God's word. Acts chapter 10, verse 39. As uh, we have uh, Peter's declaration here. And we are witnesses of all the things he did, verse 39, in the land of Judea and Jerusalem. And they put him to death, this speaking of Christ, by hanging him on a cross. Verse 40, God raised him up on the up on the third day and granted that he should become visible not to all the people but to the witnesses who were chosen beforehand by god that is to us who ate and drank with him after he arose from the dead and speaking of christ and he ordered us to preach to the people and solemnly to testify this is the one who has been appointed by god as judge of the living and the dead christ jesus is the judge of the living and the dead and he says of him notice what it says All the prophets bear witness that through his name, everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins. The prophets declared God's truth concerning man's sinfulness and a need of a Savior and the Savior who would come and die for their sins. And if you believe in him, you receive the forgiveness of sins. They spoke for God. And so back in our passage in Hebrews chapter 1, The verse says, God, after he spoke long ago to the fathers in the prophets, he says here. And that term, uh, that term here means that God formerly in the past ages spoke to Israel through the prophets. Now notice what he says here. There's two adjectives that modify this speaking or having spoke. He says in the end of verse one, in many portions, and in many ways. You know, we have people in the church these days, and some are Christians, some are not, where they say, why isn't God doing the things he did before? Why isn't he doing these things and speaking to us the way he did before? That should be happening now. And they would actually have it happen. At least they would produce things like that. Well, but God shares why here. God did things in different ways, although he's the same God. Notice what we see here. He says here, God, after he spoke long ago to the fathers in the prophets, completed action in the past, right? And he says he did it in many portions and in many ways. And that refers to the way God did it in the past. He's not talking about right now. He's talking about the past. This term, in many portions, is, uh, comes from the Greek, uh, uh, two Greek words, polo meros. Polo meaning great or much or many. Meros meaning many parts. So you have this term translated many portions or many parts. You could translate it this way, bit by bit, a lot of pieces, many parts. You think of a, a car and all the parts in the ground. Well, that's if it's in your garage, right? Uh, you got My wife's laughing because we have a car in our garage with all the parts there. But you have all those parts, right? Many different pieces, right? And so God spoke formally long ago to the fathers through the prophets in many parts are many pieces many pieces right 
bit by bit. So what does he mean here? I believe we see over a period of 1,500 years through some 40-plus inspired writers, God spoke bit by bit, slowly revealing his truth through the prophets to Israel and thus to us now. And this is what we would call progressive revelation. As God's revelation, his truth progresses through time, bit by bit, piece by piece, piece by piece, in many portions. God did it a little piece here, a little piece here, a little piece here, a little piece here, bit by bit. And that's what you see in the Old Testament. You see pieces of revelation, but it's all pointing up to as we see Christ. And notice he also spoke about it, that he did it, end of verse 1 back in Hebrews, in many ways, in many ways. The term many, again, polo and tropos, speaking of ways or manners or methods. So at many times, bit by bit, and in various ways, differing ways, many different ways God spoke to Israel through the prophets. And think about it. God spoke to his people in all kinds of different ways in the Old Testament, in many different methods. And this is exactly what the writer is saying here. He spoke to Abraham in Ur and Haran in Canaan. He spoke to Joseph in a dream. He spoke to Jacob in a dream. We have Jacob's ladder, right? We see that. To Moses in the burning bush and then face to face on Mount Sinai. To the mad false prophet Balaam through a donkey, right? To Joshua face to face with the captain of the Lord, sword drawn. To Elijah in the still small voice. To Isaiah in a vision of the temple. To Ezekiel in the grand vision of God on the throne. And then through Ezekiel by strange signs. To Hosea through his family circumstances. And to Amos in a basket of summer fruit. God could convey through visions dreams, through angels, through symbols, through natural events, through pillars of fire, smoke, and other means, many times, many pieces, and many differing ways. There was no lack of variety. He could appear in Ur, the Chaldeans, in Haran, in Canaan, in Egypt, in Babylon. God spoke in a variety of ways to the fathers through the prophets. And so what we have here was God's former revelation progressive, and it was given in many different ways uh, to Israel through the prophets. And yet we're going to see up to the incarnation that revelation was essentially incomplete. It was not complete. It was, it was, it was moving towards something, but it was incomplete. It was moving towards more correctly a person, Jesus Christ, who would die for our sins. Indeed, on the road to Emmaus, on the third day after the Lord Jesus had been risen from the dead, he was raised on the third day, he's walking away. Um, he's not walking away. The disciples are walking away to Emmaus, and he comes alongside them, and he shares with them. And what does he share? Luke chapter 24. Actually, let's turn to Luke 24. This is the risen Lord sharing with these dejected disciples, and he decides not to say, here I am, believe in me, but... He shares the word with them. He shares the word with them. Luke chapter 24, verse 25. And these are these dejected disciples who know it's the third day. They've heard reports of him being raised from the dead. They know that. And Jesus is gracious. He comes alongside them. Luke 24, 25. And he said to them, O foolish men and slow of heart to believe in all the prophets had what? Spoken. 
Was it not necessary for the Christ to suffer these things? Speaking of his death, burial, and now resurrection, right? Uh, Suffer these things to enter into his glory. And beginning with Moses and with all the prophets, he explained to them the things concerning himself in all the scriptures. Written word. He explained to them everything that had been recorded. The written word. Those things. Prophecy of scripture. God had placed in his word. And if you look down a little farther, verse 44, same chapter, Luke 24. Now he said to them, these are my words which I spoke to you while I was still with you, that the things that, which are written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. And then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures. You see, the Old Testament prophets, they pointed to Christ. They pointed to Christ, and obviously within that they pointed to man's need for Christ, revealing man's sinfulness in the context of God speaking through them. So then our passage says that God, having completed action, already done it, spoken to the fathers through the prophets many ways and many many pieces, is now doing something in these last days. Look at verse 2 back in Hebrews chapter 1. In these last days has spoken to us in his son. Having already done that, in these last days he has done this. That's what he's saying. That's what he's saying. It's interesting, this term last days is, comes from the Greek word eschatos. And we get our word, or not everybody gets this word, but if you know some theological words, you've heard probably heard the word eschatology. It's the study of end times. So right here we have this term eschatos, in these last days, these outermost days, the extreme out, utmost, outmost of time, uttermost of time. So with that in mind, he's saying, obviously, we are in the last days. You know, I always kind of chuckle a little bit, and, you know, when people say, you know, boy, there's this going on, that going, we must be in the last days, I go, because mm-hmm. <laughs> we are <laughs> you know it's all we are they were back in the last days here once christ died for our sins and rose from the dead we entered into this time of these last days there's only one more thing in his clock to do which obviously come take his church and then from there uh, bring about that 70th week of daniel the day of the lord and then as we see in the end of that tribulation bring salvation to the nation of israel that is existing then not of all time as we'll say but we are in the last days and if you look at 1 Peter, we see that in 1 Peter. Turn to 1 Peter chapter 1. We are privileged to live in these outermost days. We have all the revelation of the Old Testament. We have the completed work of Christ. Tremendous privilege we have. Tremendous privilege. 1 Peter chapter 1 verse 17. He says, and if you address the Father who, who impartially judges according to each man's work, saying, hey, if you believe he's the judge, and obviously he's given all judgment to the Son, if you fear him, right, and you, you've come to faith in Jesus, as we'll see, then, what does he say? Conduct yourselves in fear during your time stay in the earth, knowing something, verse 18, knowing that you were not redeemed with perishable things like silver and gold from your futile way of life inherited from your forefathers, it wasn't money that bought you forgiveness. What brings forgiveness is not any type of action or work on our part or money. It's the work of Jesus Christ. He says here, But with the precious blood as of a lamb, unblemished and spotless, the blood of Christ, 
For he was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but has appeared in what? This eschatos, last times, for the sake of you. First Peter 4, 7, I'll just read this for you. The end of all things is at hand. We're in the end times. We're in the end times. Therefore, be of sound judgment, sober spirit for the purpose of prayer. Think rightly. Allow your, don't allow your thoughts to go all over the place. Think rightly. Let the word of God control your thinking. 1 Peter 4, 7. So we are in these last days. The Lord could come, ultimately, the day of the Lord come at any time. He could come in judgment, first removing his church. We are in the last days. Daniel's 70th week, that, the week when God uh, brings back his plan to Israel to bring through their purging and, and refining to, so as to, to bring them unto himself. He could come at any time. We are in the last days. And that places an urgency upon the message. An urgency upon the message. In these last days has spoken to us in his Son. God is not hiding revelation anymore. He is not giving it bit by bit, piece by piece. He has spoken to us now, and this word is we're going to see, it's already done. He has spoken to us through his son. Aristance in Greek, it's a completed action. It's a completed action. God has said all he wants to say in his son. He has spoken to us. It says, notice here, to us, that speaks of the hearers uh, by now, but by now, by virtue of the completed word, that's you and I also, right? So we have God has spoken to us, and notice what he says, in his son. All the inferior, not inferior because it was uh, less, but because it was not complete, all the inferior, uh, incomplete, bit by bit, place piece by piece, Old Testament revelation was focusing and leading towards the superior revelation which would come in the person of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. The Son of God. And as we saw in Luke, Jesus revealed this after his resurrection that the Old Testament speaks of and points to him. The writer of Hebrews uh, is saying that Jesus, as we will see, is the Son of God. It's the son, he's the Son of God. He is the completed Word of God, the completed revelation of God. Uh, Nick read this earlier, but it turned to John chapter 1. John chapter 1. While you're turning there, I'm always blessed. We don't pre-plan what the host will read, but all the time we see the Spirit of God working through it. And it's like just what we were going to look at. Praise the Lord. John chapter 1, verse 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was... And it was, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God, and the Word. And go down to verse fourteen. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld His glory, glorious of the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. And then look at eighteen, first of John one. No man has seen God at any time, the only begotten God who is in the bosom of the Father. He has explained him. Christ, God the Son, has given us the revelation that God wants us to know about himself. He has spoken to us in his Son. Christ is the totality, and what he has said is the totality of what God wants us to know about him. Now, obviously, it's not everything or we'd be God, right? We don't, can't know everything about God, but what he wants us to know about him. 
You see, right now, there's no more revelation to come. It has happened. It's complete. Jude, uh, verse 3, we have the faith once for all delivered to the saints. The term faith speaks of that which we believe, the truth which we believe. Uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 13, the Apostle Paul writes in verse 8, Love never fails, but if there are gifts of prophecy, they will be done away. That means to be succeeded by something superior. If there are tongues, they will cease. That means to stop. If there is knowledge, they'll be done away. Again, superseded by something superior. For we know in part and prophesy in part, but when the perfect or complete comes... It's in a gender, it's in a neuter, 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 uh, mood, so it can't be a person. It's a thing. When the complete comes, the partial revelation will be done away. It's a large passage, but, uh, we see that God has brought forth His Word. It is complete. He laid the foundation with the apostles and prophets, and we are being built upon that. Turn to Ephesians chapter 2. And Christ is the totality in what He has said of what God wants us to know about Him. It's what God wants us to know. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 19. So then, you are no longer strangers and aliens. He's speaking to Gentile believers, the Ephesians, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and are of God's household. Having been, notice what he says, built upon the foundation of the apostles and prophets. Ephesians 2 uh, 2.20 Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone in whom the whole building being fitted together is growing to a holy temple in the Lord in whom you are being built are being built together into a dwelling of God in the Spirit. God brought forth his completed revelation through his Son and through the apostles who brought forth his word, those sent ones, and we are being built on the foundation of that truth. The foundation is already done. When you build a house, you don't keep building a foundation. You build the foundation, you lay it, and then we are being built upon that foundation. And the foundation is the truth of God through the apostles and prophets, which we see here. And indeed, it's very interesting, in each one of these that I'm going to share in a minute, in Peter, in Paul, in John, in their final epistles, they make mention to the sufficiency of the written word as complete and sufficient for everything. They don't say, wait for more visions, wait for more dreams. They don't say that. They say here, specifically, turn to Second Peter. We just studied this in the last few weeks. You can grab a CD on the way out if you want to hear more about Second Peter chapter 1. But turn to Second Peter 1. They said Peter's last words, he, it is, his going to the Lord is imminent. And so he, he declares the sufficiency of Christ in his word, a relationship with him in light of those who would try to deceive and pull you away from growing in the grace and knowledge of Jesus. Second uh, Peter chapter 1, verse 2. Grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. Tremendous. Seeing that his divine power has granted to us everything, not almost everything, but everything pertaining to life and God. through the true knowledge of him who called us by his own glory and excellence. It's through a relationship with Christ. But notice what he says, verse 4. For by these he has granted to us his precious and magnificent promises in order that by them you might become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption that is in the world by lust. And later on, he'll say, no prophecy of scriptures of one's own interpretation, but men moved by the Spirit spoke from God. You have the word of God. It is everything you need concerning what God wants you to know about him and about his will and about you in light of that. 
Same thing, the Apostle Paul turned to 2 Timothy chapter 3. Both these letters, they make clear, I'm going to the Lord. This is it. This is my last letter, basically. And within that, we have these statements of the absolute sufficiency of the Scriptures for our relationship with Christ. Uh, 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16. Very familiar passage. All what? Scripture, written word. He's not saying verbal prophecy. He's saying all Scripture. It had been brought forth in writing. Is inspired by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be adequate, equipped for what? Every good work. Everything we need is in the context of our relationship with Christ through his word by his spirit. Everything we need. Because God's word reveals a sufficient Savior. Then one last portion. Turn to John's final words in the book of Revelation, chapter 22, in the end of your Bibles. It's very interesting. These apostles at the end, in their last letters that they write, make clear of the sufficiency of the word of God for everything you need for your relationship with Christ. Revelation 22, verse 18. I testify to you, everyone who hears the words of this prophecy, this book, if anyone adds to them, God shall, take a, shall add to him the plagues which are written in this book. If anyone takes away from the words of this book, of this prophecy, God shall take away his part from the tree of life and from the holy city, which are written in this book. He who testifies of these things says, yes, I am coming quickly. Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. The grace of the Lord Jesus be with all. Amen. Besides a brief period of revelation in the day of the Lord, Daniel's 70th week, where God turns his attention back to Israel for seven years, as we see in the Old Testament and Acts chapter 2 and in book of Revelation, there are no more dreams, there are no more visions, revelation to come. It is complete, and we have it in the person of Christ. God does not speak through many different ways and many different portions anymore. We have the superior revelation in his son. He has spoken to us through his son, Jesus Christ. It is complete. And and this puts out of business all the false prophets and hucksters that deceptively deceive themselves or disguise themselves as servants of Christ, but pull people's hearts off of the word of God onto their false and bogus prophecies, visions, and experiences. And believe me, if you yield to these things, you will be plagued by it for your entire walk with Christ. We had someone here who had heard a vision or something, had a dream, and, and it, it plagued this, this woman for, for, for her walk. She always had this, and we shared the word of God with her over and over. She didn't listen. She didn't listen. God has completed his revelation. He has completed his revelation. If you want to hear a word from God, it's in the word of God. It's in the Word of God. Christ, and it's concerning Christ, delivered once for all to the saints. The Scriptures now reveal the full extent of what God wants us to know about Him, His will, and us. He has spoken to us through His Son. And Satan is going to attack this over and over again. He wants to pull away from the Word, from His very... Uh, temptation of Eve. Did God really say that to twisting the word of God, even with the God of the word when he tempted Jesus in the wilderness? 
Satan's going to try to pull you away from the word to anything else, whatever it might be, or to a false word. But we need to stay firm in the truth that God has revealed once for all, delivered to the saints. God has spoken through his son. So where do you look to hear a word from God? Is it a worship experience, a music, Christian novel? You know, there's nothing wrong with worshiping the Lord. It's a wonderful thing. We should. There's nothing wrong with music that is glorifying to God. There's nothing wrong with a, well, I don't know, some Christian novels are very bad, but uh, there's nothing wrong with something that's glorifying to God. But God doesn't speak through those things. He speaks through his word, through his word. But see, there are those who want to listen to other voices. You see, we've been given everything pertaining to life and godliness, but sometimes we're, we're bored with that. We don't accept that. And God was very clear through his word to say this time would come. Time would come when people would not want to hear the truth of God. They would actually accumulate for themselves teachers after their own desires. Turn once again to 2 Timothy chapter 4. Or 2 Timothy. You see, if you don't like what God is saying through his word, you don't want to hear it, you'll accumulate for yourself someone who says something the way you like it. The way you like it. And it's very clear. All throughout Second Peter and Second Timothy, we have a contrast between the bad guys twisting, deceiving with the word, whatever it might be, and those writers saying, stay with the word of God. And here we see this with Paul uh, sharing with Timothy. Second Timothy 4.1. I solemnly charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is the judge of the living and the dead, and by his appearing in his kingdom. That's a pretty serious thing. Preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, and exhort with great patience and instruction. And now he's going to explain why. For the time will come when they will not endure sound. Not going to endure healthy teaching of the word of God. They won't be able to remain under it. They'll want to slip away from it. He says there will not be able to endure sound doctrine. But wanting to have what? Their ears tickled, they will accumulate for themselves teachers in accordance with their what? Own desires. And notice what he says. And will turn away their ears from the truth, that's the word of God, and they will turn aside to myths or stories. We're seeing this wholeheartedly throughout the church these days where the sermon is like two minutes long with a few true verses and the rest is stories and things that make you feel good about following Jesus rather than the word of God which reproves, rebukes, and exhorts, and convicts, and trains, and makes us more like Christ. So with all that said, we have the completed word once for all delivered to the saints. If you want to hear from God then humble your heart and go to his word. Receive it as it was intended. Allow him to work in your heart and he will change you. So with that in mind, we have the last word is in the person of Christ. He has revealed and spoken to us through his son. He is the final word. And then Christ himself, the cornerstone through his apostles and prophets, are building the church on that foundation of his word And we are being built up upon that. We are being built. So with that in mind, let's finish up and look at who this child is. Take a look at our passage again in Hebrews chapter 1. God, after he spoke long ago to the fathers in the the prophets in many portions, in many ways, in these last days, has spoken to us in his Son. And notice what he says about him. 
whom he appointed heir of all things. What does it mean that Christ was appointed heir of all things? What does it mean that he would inherit everything? That doesn't make sense completely if you think about it. If he's God, and he is, right? How would he inherit everything? Look at Colossians chapter 1, verse 13. Speaking of Christ, verse, uh, excuse me, verse 16, Colossians 1, 16. For by him, he says, For by him all things were created, both in the heavens and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things have been created by him, and notice who they're for, and for him. Everything was created by him, and it is all for him. Everything created by the Son was for the Son, and everything exists for him. And you say, wait a second, how then can he be appointed the heir of all things? How can someone who everything was created for inherit those things in which they are his already? How can that be? Well, one other passage. Look at 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 9. Got a lot of verses today, so. Second Corinthians 8, verse 9. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake became poor, he became poor, that you through his poverty might become rich. God the Son took on human flesh. He, he humbled himself becoming a man. He gave up everything except for his deity. He took on human flesh and he became obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. And so we see the son having voluntarily done this, giving everything up would inherit everything back. Look at Philippians chapter 2. You see, God the son humbled himself taking on human flesh. And therefore, when he died on the cross obediently for our sins and rose from the dead, he would be exalted and is exalted. Philippians chapter 2, verse 5. Have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, although he existed in the form of God, didn't regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant and being made in the likeness of men, being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, he says, God, therefore also God highly exalted him, bestowed upon him the name which is above every name, that in the name of Jesus every knee should bow those who were in heaven, on, on earth, and under the earth, that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of the Father. The Son, before the incarnation, all things are created by him and for him. And during the incarnation, he humbled himself. And after he rose from the dead and was glorified and exalted, he received everything back. He inherited all things. All things. What child is this? He is the one who has the rights to everything. Everything. Therefore, listen to him. Notice he's also the creator of the world. Verse 2 back in Hebrews chapter 1. 
In these last days he has spoken to us through his Son, whom he appointed heir of all things, through whom also he made the world. The world is not simply this cause, the word cosmos, but Ionis, which speaks of everything. God took on human flesh this, this young, this little baby was the same one who created all things. All things. The same one. We have the tremendous reality that uh, by him all things were created. We read that earlier, Colossians 1.16. John 1.3, all things came into being by him. By him. And apart from him, nothing came into being that has come into being. Tremendous, tremendous reality. God has spoken through his Son who created the universe in whom all things are his. Therefore, listen to him. But notice he even expands on that. Verse 3, Hebrews chapter 1. And he is the radiance of, the glo- of his glory, the exact representation of his nature, and upholds all things by the word of his power. You could say literally, he, he is, or who being continually habitually, right now, Jesus Christ, who being right now, is the, the outshining or radiance of his glory. And you say, well, what, what's the glory of God? What's the glory of God? Well, you might remember in Exodus 33, Moses wanted God's assurance after he interceded for Israel's great sin with the golden calf. And the Lord showed Moses his glory in Exodus uh, 33. Moses says, then I pray, show me thy glory. And he said, I will make all my goodness pass before you and proclaim the name of the Lord before you. And I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious and show compassion to whom I will show compassion. God's glory is manifest in his characteristics that are manifest and seen and revealed in the word of God of his goodness, his graciousness, his kindness, his compassion, all those things, his goodness. Christ is the manifestation of God's excellent glory. We won't read it, but you can go to Matthew 17 on that uh, the Mount of Transfiguration where Jesus was transfigured before them. He was, he sh- his face shone as the Son. And what did the Father say? This is my beloved Son with whom I'm well pleased. Listen to him. So what child is this? He is God, the Son, radiating the Father's glory. He is the creator, the sustainer of all things. God has spoken to us through his Son. And notice in the end of verse 3, or middle verse 3, and not only is he the radiance of his glory, the outshining, Christ is the outshining of his glory. Notice he is also the exact representation of his nature. What does that mean? He is, present tense, continually, habitually, the exact representation. The term uh, New King James says express image. The Greek speaks of this word uh, character, which is an impression and it's so we have, he is the exact impression. He's exact of his nature, the term nature, hypostasis, essence or substance. What's the point? Jesus Christ is God. Jesus Christ is God. He is the exact representation of his nature. And what you see through the word concerning Christ reveals God because he is God. He is not simply the son of God, as some cults would say implying that he's not God the Son. He is God the Son. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Jesus said in John 14, 9, He who has seen me has seen the Father. Not that he is the Father, but you've seen God. 
You've seen God. He is the exact representation of his nature. He is the image of the invisible God. Colossians 1, 6, 1, 15. It was all the Father's good pleasure for the fullness to dwell in him. Colossians 1, 19. And the Word was with God, and the Word was God, and the Word became flesh. A little farther down in our passage, in verse 8 of chapter 1, notice what it says of Hebrews. But of the Son, that's speaking of the Son, notice what he says. Thy throne, O God, is forever and ever. So then, he is the exact representation. He's God the Son, the second person of the Trinity. Therefore, listen to him. And he also sustains everything. He holds everything together. Look at the end of verse 3. And upholds all things by the word of his power. You see, he's God, and whatever he says happens. He holds all things together. He sustains all things by the word of his power. It's very interesting when mockers come along and mock the truth of God, they don't recognize that it's by God's word we were created. It's by God's word that the flood initially came. It's by God's word that he will bring destruction. Turn to Second Peter chapter 3. God holds it together by the word of his power. His word is powerful because it comes from God. Second Peter chapter 3. There's going to be those who mock what God says, and here's what Peter says. Know this first of all, 2 Peter 3.3, 3, that in the last days, here we go, mockers will come with their mocking, following after their what? Their own desires. That's what's going on. Saying, where is the promise of his coming? Is it, they're saying his word isn't coming true. That's basically what they're saying. For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all continues just as it was from the beginning. Hey, everything's the same. Where's the promise of Jesus coming? Right? But notice what he says. For when they maintain this, it escapes their notice that by the word of God, the heavens existed long ago. It escapes their notice that God, by speaking, light be and light was, God saying, let there be light, that everything came into existence, that what God says happens. And the earth was formed out of water by water, through which, uh, through which the world at one time was destroyed, being flooded by water. But this present heavens and earth by his word are being reserved for fire kept for the day of judgment and destruction of ungodly men. God upholds things by the word of his power. Everything. He upholds it. You see, we need to listen to him. What he says is true. What he says is right. We need to listen to what God says and not listen to those other voices. God has placed what we need to know about him and about us in his word, listen to him. He holds everything together, every atom, every molecule by the word of his power. You think life is falling apart? Let Christ hold you together, by the way. Allow his word to work in your heart and mind that you might be secure and trusting in him. What child is this? Can you imagine the living God who created all things, the sustainer of all things, humbling himself to become like us, like us. Listen to him. Now with this in mind, we've been given God's final and complete revelation concerning his son. Luke accounts in Acts 4.12 that there is salvation in no one else. For there is no other name under heaven which has been given by which men must be saved. And that leads us to the end of our passage. Look at the second half of verse 3 in Hebrews 1. 
when he made purification of sins, he sat down on the majest, on the right hand of the majesty on high. Our text points out that Jesus Christ had made purification for sins. Katharismos uh, comes from the noun that speaks of cleansing. Spoke of that which is free from dirt or, or the purity of metals that have been refined or, or something that has been unadulterated in its mixture. Speaks of being clean. It spoke in a ritual sense of clean and unclean foods. Uh, it speaks metaphorically of a way of life, a pure way of life. But here it speaks specifically of the cleansing of sins. When he had made purification of sins. At the end of verse 3, we see the issue that confronts all of mankind. Sin. You see, our hearts are defiled by sin. They are dirty. Our sin has corrupted our hearts and our consciences. We do not think right. We have hardened hearts towards God, his will, as revealed in his word. We are rebellious. We have all sinned against the living God. We have all sinned and fallen short of his glory, every single one of us. And if you don't think you've sinned or you think you're good enough, you're deceiving yourself. Proverbs 16:2. all the ways of man are clean in his own sight, but the Lord weighs the motives. Proverbs 13:12. there is a kind of man who is pure in his own eyes, yet has not been washed of his filthiness. Proverbs 20, verse 9, who can say, I have cleansed my heart, I am pure from my sin. You see, our hearts are defiled by sin. We've all sinned. The wages of sin is death. And if you're honest with yourself, you will acknowledge we have defiled hearts. Whether we've acted on those thoughts or not, we've all sinned and fallen short. And this separates us from a holy God. God would tell his people Israel, your sins have separated you from me. We see that in Isaiah 59, but the Lord's hand is not so short that it cannot save Neither is ear too dull that he cannot hear, but your iniquities or sins have made a separation between you and your God, and your sins have hidden his face from you, so he does not hear. Sin is our problem. Sin is our problem. But the good news is, as John announced, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. If you are willing to acknowledge you are dirty with sin, that you are sinful in need of a Savior, Jesus Christ has already made purification of sins. He paid the price on the cross. He bore our sins in his body on the cross. And if you will turn to Jesus Christ and believe in him, he will cleanse you of your sins. We're not cleansed by baptism. We're cleansed by trusting in Jesus Christ. And then we outwardly proclaim what has happened in that act. The reality is, Jesus has made purification for our sins. Nothing can be added to it. Hebrews chapter 10. Behold, I have come to do thy will, Jesus says. He takes away the first in order to establish the second. Verse 10. By this will we have been sanctified through the body, the, the offering of the body of Jesus once for all. And every priest stands daily ministering, offering time after time the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But he, speaking of Jesus, Hebrews 10, 12 having offered one sacrifice for sins for all time, sat down at the right hand of God. The good news is that you can have a clean heart today. If you're a child, God says, obey your parents. 
I know you haven't obeyed your parents, right? Your parents know you haven't, right? We all know we've sinned. Turn to the Lord. He'll forgive you of your sins. He paid the full price for our sins. You see, there's only one Savior. It's Jesus Christ. We were once foolish, disobedience, enslaved to various lusts and pleasures, spending our life in malice and envy and hateful, hating one another. But when the kindness of God, our Savior, and his love for mankind, he saved us. Are you willing to turn to Jesus Christ to call upon his name? He's already done the work. You can't do anything. There's nothing you have ever done or could do that can cleanse you. You are dirty with sin. But if you're willing to call out to Jesus, cleanse me. Forgive me of my sins. I believe you died and rose from the dead. I believe you paid the penalty. He'll cleanse you. So notice as we finish in our passage, when he had made purification of sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. The term right hand speaks of his rightful place, a place of royal authority, a place of prominence, greatness, and importance, and here specifically as God the Son, i got a lot of verses on it, but you can look them up in your own time. He sat back in his rightful place. He left his rightful place as God of the universe, reigning and ruling over everything. He humbled himself, took on human flesh, still being fully God. He died for our sins, and after he made purification, he rose from the dead. He ascended back to his rightful place and sat down at the majesty, the right hand of the majesty on high. It is completed. It's done. It's done. What child is this? He's the God of the universe who died for your sins. Will you trust in him? Will you trust in him? Let's pray. Father, I thank you for your word. And I pray for anyone here uh, who doesn't know you, that they would be cleansed of their sins today, that they would call upon you, your son Jesus, Lord Jesus, I'm a sinner. But I believe you died for my sins and rose from the dead. Save me, Lord Jesus. I pray they would call upon the name of the Lord. And Father, those of us who have called upon you, Lord God, I pray we would remember how you have brought forth the truth concerning your son and that you have now completed that revelation in your son We have everything we need for life and godliness. I pray we would listen to him. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for your son, Jesus, who died for us. And it's in his name we pray.